chapter 12, we're continuing in the Gospel of Luke, looking at the parables of Jesus. Our reading is from Luke 12, 13 through 21. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, You have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is God's word. Be honest this morning. Is there any generation... In the 2,000 years since Jesus spoke this parable, that this means more than to us who are sitting in this room? Just be honest, I don't think so. I mean, America 2015 is the land of bigger barns. I don't know how anybody could argue with me. McMansions dot our suburban landscapes. Restaurants will supersize our meals to gigantic proportions for an extra dollar or two. We drive by far the largest cars in the world. If you've never been to Europe, or the rest of the world, they drive those little smart cars that we have now, or mopeds. Uh, Their gas is like $8 a gallon. We have SUVs for families with one child. You know, let's be honest. Some of our mobile homes are larger than the homes of people in the developing world. And what about movie theaters? I grew up in Philadelphia, and in Philadelphia there's sections like Mayfair and Fox Chase and so forth and so on. And every section had a standalone movie theater. I really miss them. There's actually one still in New York. Uh, the Paris Theater uh, that I go to every once in a while when I'm in New York. But we had these standalone theaters. And then I remember, I think I was 12 years old, they came out with a duplex, two screens. I couldn't believe it. And 40 years ago, you could Google this, 40 years ago this summer, we had Jaws on one screen and Rocky on the other. Imagine that. And it was all summer because you would never, there's no DVD or anything, so we go three or four times. And then they came out with the quad, the four theaters, and we thought, we're living large. Today, there's 16, 18, 24. I was in the theater in Chicago, 36 screens, escalators, rotisserie chicken, quesadillas. I mean, it's unbelievable. Not only that, we have home theaters, right? They thought the DVD would kill theaters. You know, they're supersized. But probably the thing that really defines our bigger barn culture are those orange fields we all drive by. You know what I'm talking about? Storage shed facilities, $22.5 billion industry. Gary Halgan, who leads IJM, said for that figure, we could abolish uh, slavery and sex trafficking worldwide. If you took all the uh, storage facilities in America and lined them up next to each other, they would be three times the size of Manhattan, and they're still the fastest-growing segment of the commercial real estate industry, and they have been, get this, for the last 30 years five years. P.T. Barnum was right when he said if human beings only bought the things they needed, world trade would come to a halt. So we live in a bigger barn culture, and not only have we had bigger barns, we've had to build barns to put all our stuff. 
So two questions. How did we ever get here? And can, can Christians truly follow Jesus Christ in the most materialistic culture that's ever been on the face of the earth? To answer this question, we have to go to the Bible, but we have to go to the Bible with a clear perspective. Mark Knoll wrote a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. He said the scandal of the evangelical mind is there's not much of a mind. In other words, Christians haven't been trained to think critically, biblically. We kind of check our mind at the door. We're looking for emotion, and, and that's wonderful. You know, I believe in the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, but we're so experience-driven, we don't think for ourselves. When I became a Christian, I kind of entered the church, and I knew nothing. I would never read the Bible in my life. So I kind of landed on the side of the church where financially they said we were the king's kids. Made sense, right? You know, uh, we should have the best of everything. And they did some concordance theology and pointed to rich men like Abraham and people in the Old Testament were rich. Of course, never talked about Job and his calamity. Didn't fit their perspective. And, uh, you know, the pastors drove Bentleys and Mercedes. And I'll never forget my dad when I told him I became a born-again Christian. He goes, yeah, I'll visit your church. Pastor probably has a Cadillac. That was back in the day when Cadillac was one of the few luxury cars before all the ones today. And lo and behold, my dad visited, and my pastor was driving out, and he did have a Cadillac. So, um, but then I got into legalism. Legalism got me out of that thing that I was in. And then when I was in legalism, they said, oh, we shouldn't have anything. And uh, here's the conundrum. Neither one of those extremes bears fruit. All it does is bring guilt, confusion, condemnation. Jesus said, if you know the truth, it sets you free. So if you're bound up in this area and haven't been set free, you've never discovered the truth. Because Christians that know the truth, they're just free. I remember sitting around in legalism in my backyard wondering if we should have, even have pictures on the wall. You know, should we celebrate Christmas? And I remember God speaking to me distinctly and saying, look at the flowers. Look at the trees. Look at the variety I've given you. I've given you all things to enjoy. Just hold on to them loosely. And it kind of set me free. So we want to be set free by Jesus' parable today. To understand the parable, we have to start with the question in verse 13. A man out of the crowd jumps out and he says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now on that day, whenever there were disputes among people, many times they would go to a rabbi because the rabbi was an expert of the law. And he would settle their disputes. Now, this guy doesn't want his dispute settled. He wants Jesus to tell the other guy what to do. And it centers around the inheritance. Now, you know what happens to people when money's left, right? Wonderful families that love each other. The minute someone dies and there's money to be had, go berserk and do strange things, right? So in the Jewish culture, if you left an inheritance, it was to the oldest son. He got everything lock, stock, and barrel. Now, if he was benevolent, he could give some to the other siblings. Uh, evidently, this must be the younger brother saying, tell my brother to share the inheritance. And Jesus said, who made me an arbitrator over you? I'm not going to tell anybody anything. But then he says this, verse 15, take heed, beware. Now, if he just said take heed, it's important, but he said take heed, beware. It's kind of like Marsha, Marsha. This is really important, right? He said take heed, beware. Be on guard of what? Of covetousness. A uh, better term for us is greed. Why did Jesus tell us to beware of covetousness? Because it sneaks up on you. See, we live in the, in, in the most affluent culture in the world. And like the proverbial frog in the boiling pot, one day we could look around and say, oh my gosh, how did I get here? 
How did I get so desensitized? How did I get so wrapped up in things? And the reason is, is because Jesus said, you got to watch out for this. This is a monster, and it'll get you. So the first question is, how did America get here? How did we become the land of bigger barns? And how did we get bigger barn thinking? Jer- Jeremy Rifkin has written a fabulous book called The European Dream. And in his book, he argues that Europe, the super state now, can surpass America as the greatest superpower in the world, but not materialistically and not militarily. He said there's a far different dream from Europe, but he does a great job of analyzing what we would call the American dream. He said the American dream uh, once was the cherished ideal and envy of the world, but today has led America to its current impasse. That dream emphasized the unbridled opportunity of each individual to pursue success, which in the American vernacular has generally meant financial success, Wall Street. The American dream is far too centered on personal material advancement and too little concern with the broader human welfare to be relevant in a world of increasing risk, diversity, and interdependence. The European dream, in contrast, emphasizes community relationships over individual autonomy, cultural diversity over assimilation, quality of life over the accumulation of wealth, sustainable development over unlimited material growth, deep play over unrelenting toil, universal human rights and the right of nature over property, and global cooperation over the unilateral exercise of power. Now Rifkin tells us how we got here in America. The framers of our Constitution gave us a document that gave freedom to all individuals. They gave us human rights and the right to pursue our own happiness. People that came to America came for two reasons. They didn't come for God. They came for God or to get rich. They came for God or money. But he acknowledges that through hard work, opportunity, the masses could become successful. We built this middle class. Um, Rockefellers. Steve Jobs, these entrepreneurs were allowed to flourish in the American economy. How many of us grew up with parents that were blue-collar, maybe farmers or factory workers, who put us to bed at night and said, you could be a doctor, you could be a lawyer, you could be a singer, you could be anything you want? Rifkin also acknowledges the role religion played in the American success. He said over half of all Americans are devoutly religious more than any other individual more than any other in the industrialized uh, world. We have more religious or spiritual people in the industrialized world. He mirrors what de Tocqueville said, the French philosopher, when he came to America to look at our democracy. He said, if you want to understand America's democracy, look in her churches, look at her spirituality. The people that came for God brought a Protestant work ethic. They brought a belief that wealth could be created. Proverbs 14.23 says, In all labor there's profit, but idle chatter leads to poverty. Proverbs 28.19 says, He who tills the land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows frivolity or schemes surely will lead to poverty. The Bible talks about generosity, that the benevolent soul shall be made fat, or the generous person shall have wealth. Jesus said, Give and it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, running over. Men shall give into your bosom. America is the most philanthropic Um, country in the known world. We not only give more to charity internally, but we give more to the rest of the world. So that's how we got here. So I'm going to assume the man in the parable who had this abundance of crops was industrious. He followed these Old Testament 
Proverbs. He was hardworking, fair to his employees. And the Bible said the field gave him a bumper crop. And here's what we need to understand. He was free to enjoy it. He really was. When Moses led God's people out of Egypt, they had a slave mentality. For 400 years, they've been slaves. Some of us have a slave mentality. So Moses put this dream before them. He said, you're going to a land flowing with milk and honey. He wasn't telling them you're going to go into a welfare state. He said, you're going into a land where it's going to abound. If you work it, it will produce for you. And here was the dream, that every man, every woman could sit under their vine and their fig tree. No longer would the money go up to the Egyptians and the Pharaoh, but everyone could enjoy the fruit of their labor. This man at the parable's problem came in verse 17 when he had too many crops. It was a conundrum. What do we do in a time of excess? What do we do when our money is greater than our expenses? Now, when I go through this, you're probably thinking, well, I'm off the hook. My money's not greater than my expenses. I live paycheck to paycheck. I don't have enough. I mean, uh, even some of the wealthiest people in this room will tell that story. So let's go back 30 years. 30 years ago, you didn't have a $900 computer in your pocket that told you the time and read your mail and you could ask questions to and gave you directions. You've chosen to have that in your pocket today and you think it's a need. And you think cable's a need and internet's a need. So we have all these, all these wants and desires and necessities. The truth is, everybody in this room, your resources are greater than your expenses. So whenever that happens to a people group, there are three choices. This man had a choice before him. What do I do with all these crops? One is to do what the advertisers tell you. Do you know you listen to them more than you listen to me? In fact, you listen to them more than you listen to anyone. The ear gate, the eye gate, the billboards, the TV, the radio, you see more advertising than anything else. You see it more than God's word. The advertisers tell you, you deserve a break today. You can eat, drink, and be merry. Out with the old and with the new. Live above your needs, even if you can't afford it. Uh, Some of you will say, well, advertising doesn't affect me. Big pens had 95% of the pen market at one time. And they were spending millions of dollars in advertising. And somebody came up with an idea, and I've thought about this. They said, why don't we just save that money? People are going to buy big pens forever. So they stopped advertising, and what do you think their percentage dropped to? Down in the 60s, something like 67%. So they thought, well, how do we get it back? I know what we'll do. We'll advertise again. So they started advertising. Guess what? They could only move the needle in the 70s. Couldn't get it back. That's why Pepsi and Coke kill each other to advertise, because they're not sure what's going to happen. The average car in America, $1,800 goes to advertising. Oh, but Pastor Bob, that doesn't affect me. Yes, it does. That's why they do it. It affects all of us. Second thing we can do is we can do what the culture says. The culture says we build bigger barns. We keep up with the Joneses. We show off our wealth. And finally, we can do what the Bible says. And what the Bible says, you can look at a lot of scriptures, but really for you and me today, there's just one scripture to look at. I'll put it on the screen. You can turn there now or turn there later. It's 1 Timothy 6.17. Where Paul tells a young pastor, Timothy, command those who are rich in this world. That's everybody in the room. You are rich compared with the world. If you have a garage, you're in 1% of the world in rich. 
Tell those who are rich in this world not to be haughty, not to be proud, nor to trust in uncertain riches. But in the living God who gives us richly, listen, all things to enjoy. He's given us all things to enjoy. Some of you need to hear that. Then it goes on. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. And then, and then eternity enters, storing up for themselves a good foundation in the time to come that they may lay hold of eternal life. See, eternity is somewhere in this parable because the man says, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barn. I'll build a bigger barn. And then he starts talking to himself. You ever talk to yourself? I do. Soul, now you have treasure laid up. You're, you're good for years to come. The word there is psyche. He speaks to his, his inner man, so to speak. And Jesus says, you fool, you stupid man. Because your soul's required of you this day. Now who's going to get your riches? Jesus puts the hereafter into the equation. The Bible says we can enjoy the fruit of our labor. The first thing we have to do is understand God's allowed us to prosper. Look again in your parable. The field of the man prospered him. Now, he worked hard at it, but the field delivered for him. If you've been successful, if you've prospered, I'm pretty sure that the talents and the gifts you have, God gave them to you. Now, yes, you had to work hard and do the rest, but it was from the hand of a good God. Athletes were given extraordinary skills. Uh, people that discovered oil, they didn't create the oil. The oil was in the ground. They had to get it out, right? Basically, what God is saying is, I want you to acknowledge my hand and my generosity in what you enjoy. Leviticus 25 says, you know, the land is mine, God says. That land that yielded to you, it's mine. Uh, Haggai 2.8, the gold and the silver you have, mine. Psalm 50, every beast of the field is mine. Now that's God's creed. God's creed, everything is mine. You know what our creed is? It's not the Apostles' Creed, it's not the Nicene Creed, it's the Toddler's Creed. If I want it, it's mine. If I saw it first, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. If we're playing with something together, all the pieces are mine. If you take your hands off it, look away or leave the room, it's mine. And if it, would ever, if it was ever mine, it will always be mine. That's who we are. That's our fallen nature. But God said, all this is mine, and then what did he do with it? Freely gave it to us, lavished it upon us. He said, just be a steward of it. Now, for years, I was part of that side of the church that said, oh, everything's going to burn, all this environmental stuff is bunk, it's liberal. God said, take care of my stuff. Take care of my stuff. Use it for a season as you're on the earth. One of the great gifts God has given mankind to remember that everything is his is the Sabbath. We overlooked the Sabbath today because we're in the New Testament. Uh, Jewish writer Abraham Heschel wrote in his book, The Sabbath, the higher goal of spiritual living is not to amass a wealth of information, but to face sacred moments. It is not a thing that lends significance to a moment. It's a moment that lends significance to things. I meditated on that, and I thought about, you know, I've, I've sold two homes, and both of those homes I lived in for 10 years. And I remember going to clean those homes by myself before I went to closing and thinking of how sentimental it would be because, you know, the kids threw up over here and somebody did this over here and we had birthday parties and all this. 
And I would become sentimental until I came to my new home and saw all the people that I loved in the new home, and I thought, that old place was just a box. Just a bunch of wood and timber. And The sacred moments came because the thing that matters in life is the relationships and the people that we love. The folly of building bigger barns is it'll never make you happy. It won't improve the quality of life or your relationships. It's not going to give you financial security or emotional health. I have scores of books. I read widely in this area on my shelf that will give you study after study after study that none of this will contribute to anything worthwhile in your life. But the greatest thing it won't help you with is your relationship with God. In fact, it'll fight against it. Because Jesus said you can't serve God in money, you can't love one uh, you'll hate the other and vice versa. I can't tell you how many people started out on this faith journey with me at the same time I started and who are shipwrecked today because of the material world around us. I told you I have scores of books that I've read. My favorite is Death by Suburb. Subtitle, How to Keep the Suburbs from Killing Your Soul. Now, you're laughing because you know where we're going. Uh, you ever go to the doctor and he says, now look, you're going to feel a little bit of pain. So I'm your doctor today, your spiritual doctor. You're going to feel a little bit of pain. In fact, you might feel a lot of pain. In his book, Dave, uh, Death by Sur Suburb, David Goetz uh, uses the illustration of the famous atheist Frederick Nietzsche. Thus spoke Zarustra. Zarustra had a vision of an ear as big as a man. So try and picture that, right? We're talking about parables right now. He said the ear is attached to a small, thin stalk, like a like a stalk of corn, but that stalk of corn is actually a human being. So picture a stick figure with an ear the size of a man, right? Zerusa says if you used a magnifying glass, think about that, you need a magnifying glass, one could even recognize a tiny envious face and a dangling soul. You all got the picture? I know it's hard. The image is what he calls the inverse cripple, too much of one thing. Getz writes that the suburbs tend to produce inverts, spiritual cripples. Suburbia is a flat world in which the edges are clearly defined and the mysterious ocean is rarely explored. Every decision gets planned out like the practice of registering at retail stores for one's wedding gifts. Only tragedy surprises us. In the burbs I inhabit, many are the opportunities for Bible study, innovative worship services, helping the homeless, children's programs, small groups, and much more. Yet I can't shake the image of the inverse cripple with a bloated, tiny soul. Perhaps that's one of the effects of comfortable suburban living. Too much of the good life ends up being toxic, deforming us spiritually. The drive to succeed and to make one's children succeed overpowers the best of intentions to live more reflectively, no matter the piety. Should it be any surprise that true life in Christ never germinates? It's getting very quiet in this Presbyterian church, I know. Because this is where we live. This is where we live in America 2015. So what do we do? Do we sell our houses in the suburbs and move to the city? No. Because if you're a lustful, single Christian man and you get married, you're going to be a lustful Christian man. And if you're a covetous, greedy person in the suburbs, you'll be one in the city. Now some of us will be called to do that. Some have and great things have happened. We need to reach our culture where we are. It's a matter of the heart. And that's why Jesus turns to his disciples in verse 22. And he said to him, these are his followers, these are the learners. 
Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food. The body is more than clothing. We're going to read a lot of red here. And uh, I don't even really need to preach today. Just hearing this red will do your soul well. Jesus already said, your life does not consist of all the stuff in your storage shed or your bigger barn. Now he says, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about food and clothing. That's what the pagans worry about. But then he says this, consider the ravens. And they were looked at as the most despised of all birds. For they neither sow nor reap, have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. How much more are you worth than birds? And which of you by worrying can add one inch to your stature? If you, if you then are not able to do the least, why are you worrying? Why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Here's the logic. If God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field, tomorrow is in the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the pagans of the world go after, and your Father knows you need these things. But seek first the kingdom of God, and and these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God, and these will be added to you. Jesus said, you know what, If if you have a bigger barn mentality, not only is it going to help you, it's going to be toxic. It's going to give you an anxious mind, because that bigger barn... Uh, has to be paid for, you need a security system, you got to paint it, keep it, worry about it, protect it. But seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. Now, there's an interesting thing I have to insert here. You have more than you need. So you go to God, you pray. God may tell you to build a bigger barn. There's nothing wrong with that. But remember what Timothy said, that you should share that barn? Uh, one day Jesus was talking about how rich it was for, how hard it was for the rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples were looking around like, huh, is anybody getting in? And Peter said, you know, we gave up houses and lands. Just in case you want to know, we're not rich. And uh, Jesus said, you know, there's no one who gave up houses and lands, mothers and fathers and the things of this world, who will not receive in this life and the life to come, you know, whatever multiplying factor he gave and you read that you think well I get the eternal factor you know I gave up here I get something there but Jesus said no you'll get it in this life and you know I've experienced that and so have some of you Um, I've been to lake houses beach houses I've been on people's boats Uh, people that God has blessed because they were industrious and they're giving and he's blessed them I've been in so many homes I would have never been in and enjoyed so many things I would have never enjoyed and I'm sure people have enjoyed things that I've given them that experience that they would have never had The beauty of the body of Christ is we share and and, and we use everything we have for the good of one another. That's why we're not called to sell everything. But we do need to take heed. And we need, need to beware. It's interesting that Jesus uses this word anxiety and worry. Greg Eastman in his book, The The. The progress paradox coins a a phrase called reference anxiety. He said, sociologists have long assumed that rising income does not necessarily confer rising happiness owing to reference anxiety, a fancy term for keeping up with the Joneses. As income rises, people stop thinking, does my house meet my needs, and instead is my house nicer than the neighbor's? 
Contemporary psychology tends to view this traditional assumption as not quite right. In other words, we've got to think this through better. Wienhoven, for example, believes many people have become aware of keeping up with the Joneses' pitfall. Instead, current research suggests that it's a trend in a person's own life, not in the neighbor's life, that induces dissatisfaction even when times are good. So it's not just looking at what others have. There's something internal, covetousness in us. I had referenced anxiety. All my friends that got married at the time I was married all had houses. We were all starting to have kids. I had kids. They were five years old. We were still living in an apartment. I would wake up in a cold sweat like, oh my gosh, what if I still have teenagers and we're living in an apartment? And you know, one day I woke up and I had teenagers and we were living in an apartment. Now, it's because we had a house that we sold and we were living with somebody in the church, but it happened. And guess what? It wasn't the end of the world. Nothing changed. Uh, We still loved God, shared experiences. The exhortation to Timothy was to trust God. That's the problem with the man in the parable. The Bible says to consider God, acknowledge him in all your ways, and he'll guide your paths. This man spoke to his soul, but he never spoke to God. He never put God in the equation. It's almost like Solomon, who's mentioned here. And by the way, Solomon, think about this guy. The Old Testament, he writes three or four books of the Bible. He writes a thousand songs, Proverbs. He's the wisest man that ever lived. When the Queen of Sheba came and saw his table from 1 Kings 10 and 2 Chronicles 9, she said, you know, until this time I've heard of your wisdom, now I've seen it. I mean, it was almost like Disney World. It was impeccable. This is the wisest man. But you notice every time he's mentioned in the New Testament, it's almost like tongue-in-cheek. It's almost like a backhanded compliment. Jesus said even Solomon in all his glory wasn't arrayed like one of these. Solomon, for all his riches, wrote a book called Ecclesiastes. You know what he said? Nothing made me happy. It was all vanity and chasing the wind. And why we don't believe him, I don't know. Because we're still chasing. The mark of a bigger barn culture is busyness. I got to achieve, I got to achieve, I got to work seven days, I got to drive, I got to do this, I got to get my kids in Ivy League schools, I got I to go, 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 go. And Heschel said, God gave you this one thing, the Sabbath, to recalibrate and say, oh, that's right, my life doesn't consist of the abundance of things I possess. Oh, yeah, that's right, you know, I don't need my kids to go to Ivy League school. Yeah, that's right, I'm living by a different set of values. But in a go, 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 go culture, We forget all this. If you're at a point this morning where your money outweighs your needs, and that's everybody in the room, first thing you need to do is understand it comes from the hand of a good God. He's given it to you to steward. Second thing you need to know, you can provide for your family, but there's a bigger world out there. Number three, um, you can enjoy the fruit of your labor. Number four, you need to take heed. Warning signs should be flashing all around. There needs to be a recalibration. You need to set values. What standard of living does God have for me? What do I do with the excess? The Bible says you can't trust in riches. Why? Because like drugs, alcohol, and illicit sex, they're never satisfied. You know, the Bible talks about things that never say enough, and one of them is greed. Greed says there's never enough. The monster of more, it's like playing with Russian roulette. 
You think you're not going to get burned and one day you wake up and say, oh my gosh, how did I ever get here? It's all vanity. It's all chasing after the wind. Life under the sun. And only when Solomon saw life under heaven did he start to say, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Jesus said this man was a fool because he had amassed all this wealth to leave it to someone else. There's a story of a rich man who died, this multi-multi-millionaire, and these two men at his funeral having a conversation saying, uh, how much did he leave? To which the other guy said, all of it. He left all of it. He should have heeded the words that Paul written to Timothy to, to share, to be benevolent, to store up for this life and the next. The true measure of a man and true success, number one is our relationship with God. God has given me this gift. I can remember books. Every book I quoted today, I sat down, you know, I, I bought them and read them years ago. When I sit at my desk, I can remember concepts and chapters. And there's a chapter of a book I'll never forget. It's chapter two of The Pursuit of God by Tozer called The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. You all need to go and download that and read it. It's a classic. The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. And really, it's the ability to navigate this world and navigate things, but not let them control us. The true success of a measure of a man is his relationship with God and then his relationship with other men. People are our greatest treasure. They matter to God. You're, you're worth more than the raven. Some of you need to hear that. You're worth more than the lily. Some of you need to hear that. You are God's treasure in this world. He's going to burn everything else. But you're his treasure. The rich man died and left everything. I want to leave you words with the great hymn, God of grace, God of glory. It says, cure thy children's warring madness. Bend our pride to thy control. Shame our wanton selfish gladness. Get this, rich in things and poor in soul. We all have to answer the question, when's enough enough? We all have to ask the question, what do we do with our excess? And can we leave the bigger barn culture that we live in? Because every day it's seeping into our spirit. Every day it's beckoning. And the fiery darts of the enemy are coming. Why? Because Satan knows it'll destroy us. Every time you get on a plane and go to a mission field, every time you put a check in the offering box, Every time you go to the inner city and help someone in need, every time you lend your money to someone else, every time you, with hospitality, host people, you are breaking the back of the monster of more. The beautiful thing is, you're learning to walk in freedom. You know, Adam Bruckner's a friend of mine, so his buddy Osborne, they work in the inner city, they work among impoverished kids. Whenever they come the sizzling summer to baptize people, they always sit on a bench, and I always look at that picture and I think, oh my gosh, People have these wonderful homes they could show off. They drive these expensive cars. And I said, but there's the picture I want. Sitting on a bench with people you've invested in. Truett Cathy, I've read his biography, the same thing. Some of the richest men who have ever lived, their legacy has been people. So as we close this morning, you know, are you going to be foolish like this man and just keep building bigger barns? Are you just going to leave the money to all to your kids? I mean, that's what the Gentiles are doing. You don't need God for any of that. Or are you going to make a legacy play? Are you going to invest your money into something greater? 
I can tell you so many churches where people gave the land of that church and they built camps that you know, impoverished kids could go to. And tell you story after story of videos I've seen and books I've read and stories where people made legacy plays to leverage their influence and their things for the kingdom of God. The ushers are going to come now and they're going to serve you communion. I thought of no better day to celebrate communion than today. And you might ask, well, how does communion work at Calvary Chapel? Well, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul said, as often as you do it, which means you can do it every day or you can do it once a year. But as often as you do it, you celebrate the Lord's death till he comes. So we're going to do it today. As you're served the, the bread and the cup, this is your time between you and God. You've read the words in red. You've heard what I had to say today. Process it in the quiet of your own spirit. Talk to your soul. And then we'll come and celebrate it together.